in this next section, what we're going to be doing, yeah, let's try and get, get everybody in where we can. And we may have to, we're not going to be using the, the PowerPoint, so we'll, uh, thank you. We're sending around from the last uh, presentation I did, if you want the PowerPoints, uh, I can send those to you. The one has some graphic images on it that I probably can't send that out. But the others, uh, the one I just gave, uh, you've, I can send that one to you. So challenges in Ellen White's writings. So uh, you can have that information if you'd like it. All right, in this one, it's going to be a little more interactive. We're going to try and deal with the questions that are out there. I'm going to give you some response. I'm going to share with you uh, some really useful information. Some, some things are not up to date in here, so I'll just add to it. But Messenger of the Lord by Herbert Douglas has a very useful section sections at the end. The first parts deal with the great ministry of Ellen White and what she was like. But in the last section, he deals with the criticisms. And so if you've had some issues... Uh, I'd encourage you to get this book. You also can find some information available online at uh, ellen-white.com, uh, ellenwhitedefend.org, who's uh, Judd Lake, who's from Southern Adventist University, has some great historical uh, information from people who lived during Ellen White's own time and their materials. So there's a lot of things that he's written, uh, that he's got up on his website. And uh, then the Ellen White estate itself has some great information. I would really go there first if I was looking for information before you go to places like Ellen White Exposed because they have a tendency of messing with your mind. I mean, honestly, there's an agenda. And the agenda says we're going to try and push a certain way of thinking. And so I would encourage you to do that to uh, go there first before you go to, uh, I mean, to go to uh, the other sites first before you go to the skeptical sites. All right, uh, let's, are we ready to begin? I know uh, we have no space, do we? What can we do? Can we, uh, are there ways we can squeeze in? You guys want to sit? If you want to back up, I can put the Yeah, let's, uh, let's back up. I don't need this right now. Okay, so there's a few extra, extra chairs out here. Sit down the middle aisle. We'll just make do here. All right, someone coming in the back there. All right. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we want to thank you that you have provided a way for us to make sense of the difficulties. Help us to take into account the context of what is written and to be able to understand it to the best of our ability. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this is going to be interactive. So if you have a question, I'd like you to say your question. Then I'm going to repeat it for the sake of the recorder. And if you don't have any questions, I'll jump into some of the information I have. This is kind of risky because I don't know what you're going to ask. And I... I probably do know most of what you're going to ask, but if I don't, then uh, maybe someone else in the, in the audience will. But I don't know that I have the answers, I, that I have the right questions, so we're going to open it up to whatever questions you have, and we'll trust that the Lord leads us. So I'm going to start at the back first. Yes. Two-part question. All right. Where do we as Adventists get to be one thing 
prophet has been proven a false, or has falsely prophesied that they're now a false prophet and they're not. Okay, where do Adventists get the, the basis for their idea that once an, a prophet has falsely prophesied something, that they're not a prophet from then on? Well, I don't know that Adventists do actually say that. What Adventists say is that if people say something and it doesn't come to pass, according to the Bible, and uh, we looked at that uh, this morning in Jeremiah, if, and Deuteronomy has the same thing, if a prophet says something and it doesn't come to pass, your tendency is to say, this is not likely to be a prophet from the Lord. But that's only one of the tests. So what Adventists are more likely to say is there are at least four main tests, and we looked at six tests this morning, by which you'd have to judge a prophet. So you can't just do it on one test. Okay. The second part is uh, in First Kings uh, chapter 13, where you have the example of the, the lying prophet. Uh-huh. All right, that's, that's a fascinating one. Yes. That uh, it looks like a prophet comes along... And, and deliberately lies. And so how do we deal with that? Well, first of all, it's a unique situation. I mean, it, it makes for a great sermon. I preached on it once. But it's a unique situation. We obviously should be careful about drawing general principles from a unique situation. Second thing, we just read several other places in the last seminar where prophecies were made, but they were conditional, and so they didn't come to pass. So you have to be careful. But where somebody, where you've got this unique kind of situation where the guy lies and then the other prophet loses his life, I mean, it's just one of those strange things that show that people weren't really listening to the Lord. So, uh, is there a question that arises out of that? Yeah, I, I, I really think that the second prophet was not acting under direction of the Lord at all. And the first prophet the challenge that he has, he did not live up to the word of the Lord that he was given. And the second prophet, to me, he was a heretic. Right, but I think God used a donkey too, but you know, <laughs> the guy lied and, and he, and look what happened, somebody lost their life, you know, even if he was kind enough to go and pick up his body. All right, yes. At the very end of the last session, we had that sentence up there, people used a whole lot, very well known Adventist, the lesser light, the greater light. Could you bring that out? People don't read the whole context to get what the meaning is, and they just take the sentence and run with it. What was more the clear meaning of that, the lesser light, the greater light context? Really, the, the, the original context, in terms of Ellen White thinking, uh, the, the question is, what about this phrase, the lesser light to the greater light? The original context actually comes from Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 refers to this woman standing on the moon. And uh, the moon is, of course, a reflection of the sun. So the moon reflects the sun. So what is it that the woman is standing on? What is it that reflects the sun? Who is the sun of righteousness? Christ. And what is the lesser light that reflects the greater light? The Bible. So within Ellen White's original understanding, all prophecy was a reflection of Jesus Christ. Is everyone following that? Jesus Christ is the greater light. He is the son of righteousness. And the Bible that the woman stands on, that's the church. The church stands on the Bible. And the Bible reflects the greater light, Jesus Christ. So if you take that within that context, then Ellen White's understanding of the lesser light pointing to the greater light was that she was a lesser light pointing to Jesus Christ. Now, she did that 
by pointing people back to the Bible. There's no doubt about it, right? She pointed people back to the Bible, but really she was pointing to Jesus Christ. Everyone follow what that phrase means? Revelation chapter 12, yes. I have a question on that phrase because I was reading about it the other day, and it mentioned something about um, how John the Baptist was the lesser light who um, was the... was pointing to the greater light Jesus. What? Very good. And that's what I mean within the, within the context. Because prophecy points to Jesus Christ. The Bible, the, which is written by the Spirit of Prophecy. Remember when we say Spirit of Prophecy, the term within John's thinking included his brethren, the prophets. So we could go into all of that in Revelation 19. But the idea is... It included his brethren, the prophets. So the Bible is also written by the spirit of prophecy. So all of the prophets of the Bible, what was their role? To point to Jesus. And that's why John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So the phrase, the lesser light pointing to the greater greater light, really refers to the spirit of prophecy pointing to Jesus Christ. But it does it through the Bible. Okay, there's a, there's a fine, tricky line that we're going to have to walk here, right? So the one way is to start cutting up and dividing the Bible and Ellen White into, oh, that's inspired, that's not inspired. You, you know what could happen? Oh, Jonah, wow, that really wasn't inspired. Have you heard of the guy who did that? So he, he w- went and listened to a sermon and, and the preacher said, no, Jonah's not inspired. So he went home and he cut Jonah out of his Bible because it's not inspired. He only wanted an inspired Bible. But then he went to another church the next week, and they said, oh, books of Genesis and Exodus and so on, they weren't really inspired. That's, and so he cut those parts out. And then he went to another church, and they said, oh, the book of James is a book of straw. And so he cut that part out, because you don't want any straw in your Bible. And so he went through, until eventually all he had left were the covers. <laughs> that was his inspired Bible. So the challenge can be that we end up trying to cut and splice I believe that God inspires the person, and there are. And how does He do it? He does it through. We had a diagram last time. He does it through revelation. What is revelation? Revelation is when God reveals Himself. How does He do it? What are forms of revelation? <coughs> Dreams, visions, uh, Jesus Christ, history. So God reveals Himself through specific things. So when a prophet says, "I saw this." I say, wow, that's like divine insight. You you know what I'm saying? I saw and vision this happening. To me, divine insight. When a prophet is describing mundane details of how long your dress should be, then I'm going to say, well, that's that's a more technical detail. This is not like looking into the throne room of heaven. But I'm still saying that the prophet, him or herself, is inspired. Are you following that? The prophet is inspired. Sometimes the words that they use... They use their own expressions. That's what we read last time. But the prophet himself is inspired. And we need to be careful about cutting, trying to cut parts in and cut parts out. But you understand what I'm saying? Does that answer that? Okay. Yes.
Okay, let me quickly explain the difference between verbal and thought inspiration. Verbal inspiration means every single word is inspired. Thought inspiration means the original thought is inspired, but the words that are used to express it are the, are the prophet's own. So, for instance, sometimes I might say things a little differently. That's why Ellen White's writings were edited, because the words themselves are not inspired. She was inspired with the basic concepts. All right? Yes. She, uh, as regarding greater and lesser light, she is one prophet that's compared, only if this is right, with all the prophets of the Bible, but yes. she is one. Therefore, you know, if Jeremiah stood alone, he would be a lesser light. But if you compare all the other prophets in and. And no, notice what we're saying. The, the question is about the lesser and the greater light again. Notice what we're saying about that. We are not saying that Ellen White should be put above the Bible. If Ellen White disagrees with the Bible, guess who I'm getting rid of? I'm getting rid of Ellen White. I'm going to stick with my Bible. None of the Adventist doctrines come from Ellen White. They come from the Bible. That's what I'm going to hold to. The Bible is the only rule of faith and practice. But at the same time, I treat what Ellen White has to say very seriously because I believe God spoke to her and he spoke through her. All right? Yes, other questions over here. Um, could you explain to me a little bit about 1844 and what her position was and at that time and how do we justify what almost seems like a... Are you talking about the shut door theory particularly? Yeah, but it seemed like okay. she believed in 1844 that Jesus was coming, right? Because right. She was standing on Ascension Rock with... with Okay, so very good question. Did Ellen White believe that Jesus was going to come in 1844? Yes, she did. And uh, we have to remember that she did not receive her visions until afterwards. Right. So what happened? And when was the great disappointment? October 22. So October 22, yes. Is she standing out there? Does she understand what's going on? No, she doesn't. She's standing there like everybody else, looking at the clouds, waiting for Jesus to come. Does he come? No. no. At least not in the way that she expects. And so only later on does she receive her vision. Does anyone know what her first vision was about? She sees three platforms. And... Uh, well, there's two visions that kind of come together here. But anyway, she sees three platforms, and the people of God are marching up on these platforms. What do the three platforms represent? Three angels. The three angels' messages. And so she sees, sorry, she sees these, yeah, I'm going to jump on a platform here. So she sees people moving through these three platforms, and as they move, people are falling by the wayside, and they are marching on to the kingdom of God. And that clearly, in the end, it represents the Adventist movement. Initially, it's just a pathway she sees going on. Later on, the three platforms help her to identify the three angels' messages. And she sees that as people are falling off, only a few make it to the heavenly city. She understands there's a disappointment, but they will still make it to heaven. That's the beginning of her understanding of what took place there. So, now, there are certain statements made that in the prophetic charts... Originally, that were done. There was a mistake in the prophetic charts originally. And she says things like, God held his hand over the mistake. So now that seems like, wow, that's really strange. Why would God hold his hand over a mistake? Well, to me, it's not such an unusual thing. God was allowing events to, to unfold according to prophecy. Revelation chapter 10, 
was an indication of what would take place during this time. Does anyone know Revelation 10 and 11, what it's talking about? Yeah, a scroll. John is eating a scroll and it is sweet in his mouth, bitter in his stomach. Was that the experience of the believers in 1844? Did God allow that experience? Does God sometimes allow things to happen to you? So when she uses this expression, I believe she is saying that God allowed it to happen. It's just her way of saying that. Did you have another question following on that? All right, good. Yes. Yes, that's a, that's a very good example. Very good example. Jesus allows his disciples to think what? He's going to be crowned. Why? Because he rides in on a donkey. Who rides in on a donkey according to prophecy? Kings do. So they are, the disciples are out of their mind happy. You know, they're sitting there. They're arguing. He's about to be crucified. They're arguing about who's going to be appointed in the kingdom. No, I'm going to be chief finance officer. No, I'm going to be the right-hand man. I'm going to be the prime minister. They don't realize that everything is going to be dashed. Are their eyes blinded? Yes. Yes. Where's another example that we have in Scripture of where their eyes are blinded? The walk to Emmaus. Luke chapter 24. They're on their way to Emmaus, and it says he, he hid himself so they wouldn't recognize him. And so does God sometimes do this? Absolutely. We shouldn't be surprised. All right, yes, next question, so, Thomas. Well, there's a statement along with that. You've got to understand that you know, the reasoning today is reasoning why he did it. And it's very simple with the road to a to see why he did it. And not every instance are we able to see all the reasons why and why not God did things the way he did. But on that one story, you can very clearly see why they allowed their eyes to be hidden so that they could have their faith built on the scriptures. Right, they had to go through that disappointment so they would go back to the scriptures. Is that what happened as a result of this? There was an incredible set of Bible studies. We often call them the 18, uh, is it 1848 conferences? And uh, where they went back to the, to the Sabbath conferences of that time, they just studied the Bible out, studied the Bible. And they started realizing, hey, you know, the Bible doesn't teach about the state of the dead like, like we thought it did. And the Bible doesn't teach on, uh, you know, which day is the Sabbath as we thought it did. And so they, they really grappled with these things, and they came up with whole new understandings because of the disappointment. They realized they could only depend on the Word of God. Yes, in the back. I Plagiarized. Okay, yeah, one of, these, one of the uh, things that we dealt with in the last session was we looked at the charge of plagiarism. We discovered only less than 2% of her work was borrowed or derived of her published work. That means how much was not? Ninety-eight uh, percent. Have you tried to write a paper in which you do not 
let's say you've got several resource source books out for you. Have you tried to write a paper when you've written and you try not to use their words? Anybody done that? It's really hard, you know, you're, and you're trying to make it your own words, but it's really difficult because you just find yourself naturally using those phrases. So only less than 2% of her work has this borrowed nature, and I think we overplay that at times. And uh, the, the largest example we have is Desire of Ages, and about 31%, uh, based on calculations, is probably derived from other authors, about 23 books. She was a prolific reader. But even after a study where they did a study on it, after looking at it for six years and looking at how she used it, they said her usage of it still showed originality of thought, even though she may occasionally have used their words. All right. Yeah, more historical content that she tended to rely on it. Uh, who haven't I taken? Yes. And, and what he's saying is that, you know, there, there was so much misunderstanding even back then that you needed a prophet in order to bring about a correct understanding. I'd say even more so, a prophet was predicted to come for the end times. And that we know that in the remnant church, you, you need to have the, spirit, the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. And so we needed a message to, to help us understand what the Bible was truly saying. Yes. About her moons of Jupiter. Okay, moons of Jupiter, quick uh, refresher for everybody else. Uh, there was a time Ellen White was in vision and she saw, I think, seven moons, and these moons were circulating a planet. There was a sea captain there by the name of Joseph Bates, and uh, so he knew something about astronomy. You had, uh, I think, Loughborough there at the same time, and they were astounded that she knew how many moons were circulating around Jupiter. You go back to the original, she does not actually say which planet it was. She just happens to state, you know, that I see seven moons, and they assume that she must mean that she's speaking about Jupiter. It becomes a confirming evidence for, I, I think it was Bates and Loughborough, you can correct me if I'm wrong, who were there. They both said, look, this is it. This is, the Lord is speaking through her. She knows nothing about astronomy Therefore, this must be the Lord. So it becomes a confirming evidence. Of course, we find out later on with more superior technology that there are not just seven moons. Was she therefore wrong? Well, A, she doesn't say it's Jupiter. And B, maybe God gave her that view. And, and look, how far back was she? You know, to just see seven. She saw what, what they could see if they knew astronomy. He gave her that vision in order to convince who? to convince Bates and Loughborough of the vision. All right, so that explains the, the seven moons. Any other questions? Yes. Um, I'm just wondering how do we balance what we get from Spirit of Prophecy with the Bible, particularly thinking about um, there's a lot of little details that Ellen White adds into Bible stories. I'm thinking about like when we're teaching our children. I know growing up for me there was a lot of confusion about what was actually in the Bible and what was in Ellen White. So okay, so the question is, how much should we teach our children of the extra details that Ellen White supplies? And uh, I, I would say I always feel comfortable 
in always going back to the Bible. You know, that, that's the most comfortable position. But do we, in telling the Bible story to our kids, do we sometimes have to liven it up? Any of you ever done that? Have you ever tried reading to them from the book of Leviticus? You know, you, you need to be able to put it into child's language to help them understand, to make the story come alive. I don't think that there's anything wrong in adding the details. And as they get older, helping them to understand, to, to go back and to read the Bible text for themselves. That's what you really want to do. Get them into the Bible. That will clarify their thinking. And uh, so adding the extra details from Ellen White I don't think is wrong, but always lead them back to the Bible. Right. So, so you, you, that's what you want to do. You want to take kids back to the Bible and have them read it. But in order to help them really grasp the story, you're going to have to tell some of the details. So sometimes what I even do is I take the Bible story and I, I'll read it in the Bible and then I'll tell it in my own words to my kid. But I find that their imagination is so great that what comes out the other end is pretty unique anyway. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they have to have lots of extra material to add to those verses. Yeah, we sometimes uh, we call that exegetical, and sometimes we call it isogetical. Anyway, <laughs> they, they, we we used to say there's theology and themology, and there's a fine line. All right, other questions that we have? Yes. Yeah. The, the, the copyright issues only really came about at the beginning of the 20th century, late 19th century. And so before that, people weren't expected to give these copious references because it was like giving authority or credence, as you say, to those, uh, to those authors. And so Ellen White, we, we read a quote from Great Controversy. She says, sometimes I did not give specific reference because I wasn't interested in using those writers as an authority, but, be, but I simply used their words in order to express uh, the things I'd seen. And they, they'd put it together in a good manner. All right. Yes. Uh, yeah. Let's get it. Okay. Shut door theory. Uh, here's what Ellen White believed. Immediately after 1844, like those of her fellow Adventists, she believed that those who had rejected the uh, Adventist message would be lost. And like many of those around her, she was caught up in the idea that you really didn't need to do evangelism because the only people who were going to be saved, remember her vision of, of the path going up to heaven, those who were only going to be saved who had already accepted the light that was given to them. Later on, she came to understand from the book of Revelation that there's also an open door. And uh, Revelation 5 speaks of an open door, and there's an open door into heaven. And that salvation was still open for many people. She always believed that those who had rejected the light of the Adventist message, that original light, that in a special sense there was a shut door against them. So she did believe that. She didn't change that. She says later on, this is what I believe. But I never believed that salvation couldn't go to everyone else. In fact, in a vision, God helped correct some of that thinking that she had along with other Millerite Adventists. And I believe she's been very honest about it, put it down, 
said, this is what I believe, and so I don't have a big problem with those who say she changed her mind. I think God changed, uh, changed her understanding, and there was a shut door, but there was also an open door. So. Did God sometimes allow a hand over her, as you said earlier in the, in the session? So she may have said something that God allowed a hand over you know, I, I think definitely she used her own words at times, and she had her own logic and expression. Um, and so she may have come up with things that later on, with progressive understanding, she came to understand, no, this is actually what God is saying here. And so I see, I see a definite development in her understanding of the Godhead. I see growth over a period of time, you know, understanding of salvation over a period of time. So, so I can definitely see growth. That, that's the way I'd like to. In fact, she, she deliberately said to people, there were some people who said, look, I will take Ellen White's view of history, that's what one guy said, over any other historian. And she wrote back and said, no, you better not say that. I am not trying to be a historian. I am trying to give the view of, of spiritual history, as it were, the, the outlining of history from a spiritual perspective. And she wasn't trying to say that she was perfect in all historical facts. Everyone following me? Yeah. There's plenty of examples of biblical prophets who are not perfect in all of their things. Take Nathan, for example. David wanted to be the one to build the temple. Speaking with, with, with Nathan. Nathan very, said, Go for it. Do it. Very good example. Nathan says, yeah, I think it would be wonderful if you built a temple. Imagine if you're the prophet and the king says, hey, I'd like to build a temple. He thinks this is a wonderful idea, but later on... God says, no, Nathan, David has too much blood on his hands. He cannot build the temple. So, yes, uh, do prophets grow in the understanding? Absolutely. Other questions? What about Ellen White and volcanoes? Didn't Ellen White have a really unusual view of volcanoes? Anyone heard of that? See, what, what is our understanding of volcanoes today? Coming through the earth, how? What do we what what do we call what's happening underneath the earth? Tectonic plates, right? And as those move, so things come up from underneath, and that helps create uh, these volcanoes. Suddenly, there's a lot more movement, a lot more pressure, and that blows it out. However, Ellen White, here's what uh, here's what she believed about volcanoes. I'm just going to pick it up from here. She says. Uh, here are some of the things that she wrote about. Her writings contain eight relevant concepts that have been debated since they first appeared in 1864. The list includes formation of coal beds is linked to the flood. Secondly, coal produces oil. So some people have debated that. Then subterranean fires are fueled by the burning of both coal and oil. Then water adds added to the subterranean fires produces explosions and thus earthquakes. And earthquakes and volcanic action are linked together as products of these underground fires. Do we just sing along? <laughs> All right, we'll, uh, we'll just compete. But it does sound good, doesn't it? All right, both limestone and iron ore are connected with the burning coal oils and deposits. Air is involved in the superheat, and then deposits of coal and oil are found after the subterranean fires have died out. Well, some people have laughed at that and said, that's ridiculous. I mean, can you, have you ever heard of anything like that? Well, you should have as Adventists. <laughs> but, I mean, where does it come from? Well, um, some people have said, well, this comes from John Wesley's famous sermon, The Cause and Cure of Earthquakes, 
but there are striking differences. So I don't believe that she just grabbed it from John Wesley. So is there scientific uh, argument for this? Notable scientists have confirmed Ellen White's observations. Otto Stutzer's Geology of Coal documented that subterranean fires in coal beds are ignited through spontaneous combustion, resulting in the melting of nearby rocks that are classed as pseudo-volcanic deposits. In other words, some scientists, and I could read you some other ones, have gone in and actually said, you know what, this is actually a pretty accurate description of some volcanic or pseudo-volcanic activity. You following me? So was Ellen White wrong? No, she was just describing a unique phenomenon. She wasn't necessarily describing all volcanoes. And so it's actually been proved now by some science, but it doesn't apply to all volcanoes. And she never said that it did. Yes? What about her statements about the amalgamation of man and All right, very good. There of which it seems that some races are still alive today kind of thing. So I had one guy in Africa who was a real racist. Um, Hopefully none of you know him. <laughs> anyway, so one guy in Africa, and he, he would tell me, there are some races alive today that are a combination of kind of, you know, monkey and man. And that's just ridiculous. Did Ellen White uphold that we are all races connected to Adam? Yeah. Did she uphold that? Is that a biblical principle? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, this was nonsense. So where does it get it from? Well, there are some statements in Ellen White that speak about amalgamation of man and beast. Now, there are two ways to read that. There is amalgamation of man with man and of beast with beast. In other words, there was some scientific, maybe experimentation, but there was definitely an intermingling. In the most obvious level, who married who? Yeah, brothers and sisters and cousins, but, but specifically, who does the Bible speak about? The sons of... God and the daughters of men. So is that a form of amalgamation? What does amalgamation mean? A mixing together. So on the one hand, you know, the simplest way to understand this is that Ellen White is speaking of a mixing together of different kinds of human beings and different kinds of animals. I happen to believe that there was genetic experimentation. We think we're so spot with genetics now. I think they had genetic experimentation with different animals and they were producing monstrosities. That happens to be my opinion. I don't have any biblical evidence for it, but it's what I like to think. The first Jurassic Park was pre-flood. All right? It's on the Adventist Forum site. Hopefully he did a good job. Good. There are a couple of things. Um, let me see if I, I... I probably can't find it offhand. But there are a couple of things in there, yeah. Uh, she used, she only used the word, uh, so she used the word on two other occasions other than this. And she used it metaphorically comparing faithful be believers and worldlings. And she used it to describe the origin of poisonous plants and other irregularities in the biological world. So does it seem like she was really referring to the amalgamation of man and beast or simply the mixing up of different human, of, of these different human groupings as well as different plants and maybe genetic modifications. Which makes sense to you? To me, it's very clear in harmony with all of her writings to say she wasn't saying that monkey and man got together, 
but that man was monkeying around with man and with animals. You understand? Yeah. Right. So amalgamation sort of becomes a result of sin as it, as it gets... It, it's monkeying around with the genetics, right, as opposed to necessarily combining man and beast. I don't think that that's what that's referring to. But I realize some disagree with me on that. All right. Are you, are you referring to amalgamation? <clears throat> I've always understood it as, as man with beast. You're, right. You're saying I, I'm saying... That here's the reason why I say it cannot be that, because... That, Ellen White clearly saw the brotherhood of all humanity. You understand what I'm saying? That we are all from Adam. We all come from Adam. She never seemed to have a lower estimation of any race that, that is alive today. Well, it's an example of mal- amalgamation of Caucasian marrying a Korean. No, I don't believe because we're all, we're all part of, of Adam. Here's an example of amalgamation. A Seventh-day Adventist. Marrying an unbeliever, all right? <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's in the broad sense. And, of course, I'm not monkeying around with your genes. <laughs> all right, good. Any other questions at the back? Yes. In our devotion life, we have the lesser light and the greater light. Is it wise to, to have devotion to the I don't think it's wise to just have devotions with Ellen White. I, she never advocated that. She, she advocated that we should... We should use her writings by all means. She said, read the testimony. She put a lot of counsel about reading the testimony. But she always pointed people back to the Bible. And uh, she was actually quite critical of people who just used to quote her from the pulpit. She wanted the Bible preached. And so uh, I, I find it useful to always have the two together. But just to rely on one, as, as somebody said earlier, you wouldn't just want to take one prophet and use that as your sole way of understanding all salvation. What if we just had the book of James? Great book, but that, I wouldn't want that to be the whole Bible. All right. Next. Yes. <laughs> now I can. And I just always want to ask this to someone who knows about her. Young people, we always talk about Ellen White. Like, you know, she's an authority on wearing jewelry and dancing and, you know, things like that. I wanted to know. Okay, so good question. Can we take what Ellen White says about jewelry and about other standards the way it is today because times have changed? Therefore, has the council changed? Well, that's an excellent question. So what you have to do is... We often talk about form and content. And I know this drives some people nuts, but I, I believe there is a good principle. Uh, let's, let's take an, an issue of understanding form and content. Moses is walking along and he sees a burning bush. What does the burning bush, what does God in the burning bush tell him to do? Take off his shoes. What is that a sign of? The, yeah, the presence of God, but what, is the, what does the taking off the shoes represent? Respect. Now, if we were to take off our shoes, what is that sometimes a sign of? Casualness, Casualness disrespect even. You get, in, you get into uh, the worship service, and uh, in some cultures you take off your shoes, but in other cultures that would cause a stink. 
<laughs> All right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right. So the form is the shape that the content comes in. What is the content principle? Respect. What is the form? Take your shoes off. Can that change and adjust? Absolutely. Let me give you another example. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and, and this will work back to this issue on standards. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, what does Paul say to, those, to the ladies in Corinth? Yeah, cover your, cover your head and shut up. All right? Now, now he says, be quiet. So let me, let me use his words. So be quiet. He says, don't talk. Why is it that Paul says that? There is a definite contextual background for why he says that. So I was so curious, I went to have a look. So here's what I discovered. You ready for this? So Paul is writing to Corinth. So I said, let me find out what was going on in Corinth. Does that make sense? Up on the hill in Corinth, there is a temple to the god Aphrodite. And who was in the temple? They had temple prostitutes. Temple prostitutes would keep their hair long and they would prophesy. So they would be speaking these prophecies with this long flowing hair, but they also offered certain uh, temple favors, and we'll leave it at that. Now, in the Christian church, what happens? Where are they meeting? In people's homes. In the home, when you were outdoor, the modest thing for a woman to do was to cover her hair, quite unlike the temple prostitutes. They would cover their hair when they walked around outside. But when they were in their homes, what did they feel comfortable to do? Let their hair loose. So now, unbelievers are walking into a little Christian gathering, and there is a woman with her hair loose, and what is she doing? Prophesying or speaking a word from Scripture or something else. What's going on in the unbeliever's mind? Yeah, we're the favorites. Okay, he's getting to the heart of the issue here. So, so, what, so when Paul writes that women should cover their heads and keep silent, what is the context, context of 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Everything should be done decently and in order. So the principle is to do everything decently and in order and to not let unbelievers get the wrong perception of the church. You all follow the principle? How does he express that principle? He says, cover your heads, and, and he says, don't speak. Now, later on, he has a theological argument about woman and man, and I'm not going to get into that. But in terms of this context about covering the head and about not speaking in church, is there, does the context help us to understand the principle? Absolutely. Now, the question is on standards. Is Ellen White describing something that we cannot do today? Is she saying, look, what's, what's the principle on, on, on jewelry? I, I actually really like the way uh, our Adventist Believes covers the principles. you know what they are? Anyone want to call them out to me? What are the principles of dress? Modesty. Modesty. Very good. What else? Health. Very good. That uh, it, it benefits our health instead of these tight corsets that would just about choke the life out of you. So very good. Modesty, health. Very, what else? Cost. Cost. The, the economics of it. So we've got, to, we've got to follow the cost principle. What else? Appropriate. Appropriateness for, the, for what you're dressing for, right? Very good. What else? Simplicity. Simplicity. Very good. So simplicity. And I think there's one more. I think we added in one there somewhere. Practicality. Practicality. Very good. I think that's connected with the health. Practicality. So there are these principles that Ellen White was drawing up. Do her dress reforms come out of those principles? 
Absolutely. As I look at those principles, is there any justification for Adventist young people to start wearing jewelry? Is it a good cost decision? Is it a very practical thing to do, to stick holes in your, in your body? And these days it's really gross. I mean, they've got holes everywhere. You know, your tongue, your nose, your belly button. I mean, isn't that painful? Anyway, so uh, is, the, is it a very modest thing to do? Generally not. It, it attracts attention, right? What else? Is it healthy? I mean, does it do anything for you? In fact, you can get infected, so... It's not generally healthy. What else? Uh, what was the, the other area? Simplicity. simplicity. Does it lend to simplicity or does it make one more thing you've got to worry about putting on? So is there any reason to wear jewelry today? No. Well, you guys, look at the evidence. Do the principles still apply? I believe they do. So just applying the principles, I have to say, has the standard really changed? Or is it that the people are not applying the principles? Okay, good. Other questions there? Yes. Theatrics. Theatrics and the gospel. Uh, Yeah, Ellen White had a lot to say. She always liked the simple gospel message preach. Uh, One of the things you should do sometime is get hold of some of the sermons Ellen White preached. They are powerful. I mean, they lift up Jesus Christ. They're just incredible. How did Ellen White feel about theatrics? She felt it distracted from the gospel. Uh, when people, I always say this, you know, the, if you've got to make up for the lack of content, you're in trouble. <laughs> you know, so does that mean that she liked things dry and boring? No, in fact, she wrote against it. She says, make your sermons as interesting as possible. Seek to gain people's attention. So there's this balance. Get people's attention, but don't lean towards theatrics. Yeah. There was one case when Jesus himself used theatrics. Just one case I can think of. When the Phoenician woman came to him and he pretended that she was worthless and the disciples played along and everything and then he showed them and I think it taught them a good lesson. Yeah, instead of theatrics, what I'd like to say is he stepped into their shoes and he represented what they were feeling. So because I, I, theatrics has such negative connotations. I think, could Jesus be dramatic at times? Absolutely. But was he theatrical? I kind of disassociate from that. Yeah. All right. I, uh, are we, uh, we have 15 minutes, right? Okay. Are you, I know it's warm in this room. Or is it just me? It's warm in this room. And we don't have oxygen. You know, we're just disobeying a principle right here. You know, <laughs> fresh air is one of the, the points. So everybody just stand up quickly. Just stand up and get some oxygen. Is there any way to get air? No? I don't think they open. No. Okay, now reach, reach for the stars. All right, reach for the stars. Stretch on your tiptoes. Breathe in. Breathe in. Breathe in. Breathe out. Okay, now we've used up all the oxygen. Sit down. All right, quick uh, last few, few questions. Now I'm going to bring up one that you're too afraid to bring up, all right? Self-abuse. This is one area where I find there is tremendous struggling with young people. I'm talking about the M word. I'm not going to say it because of current company. But there's this concept, uh, you know, how could Ellen White write things about self-abuse that says, you know, people... There's going to be, uh, they're even going to go insane uh, 
if, uh, if they practice this form of activity. I think that there are two things we have to avoid here. One is, who is the accuser of the brethren? Satan. I have found young people who are tremendously burdened by guilt because they don't know the love and the power of Jesus Christ. And all that they have are some negative statements. And when they read those negative statements, they are, they are so burdened by, by guilt, they're wracked by it. And that's, that's the picture some people have of, of Ellen White's writings. Well, I read this, and then I was so wracked by guilt, I never want to go through it again. Oh, you know what I'm talking about? So we first of all have to recognize that Ellen White wrote a lot about love, about God's love, how God works with every person. And when she wrote these statements, they were often to very very strong statements to very particular situations. Everyone following with me? Second thing I want to say is that while some of her statements seem extreme, within the context of her time, within the, the medical understandings of her time, what she was saying was not unusual. Uh, there were other medical doctors who were saying the same things about what happens. And you can understand why this would be. Some of the activities taking place with self-abuse were a consistent... Uh, fanatical use of this by certain people in an environment that was not very clean and healthy and that would sometimes leave, lead to the possibilities of syphilis and other uh, sexual disease because people were in, in bathrooms and other places. I'm trying to use general language, forgive me. But I'm just saying that there were certain events connected with the practice of what people were doing that led to medical conditions. Uh, I could go more into it, but I, I will refer you to a section in Herbert Douglas's book on page 493 that deals with this. And the main problem, I feel, is people's self-obsession and these days, uh, lustful thinking. Can I just put it down there? That the main problem with this activity is lustful thinking. And I believe that Ellen White will ultimately be proved to be right in this area. That's uh, Herbert Douglas's Messenger of the Lord, page 493, deals with this topic. But I do, I do want to have the balance. Ellen White never joined Satan in becoming accuser of the brethren. She would sometimes state what it was that we were to believe the natural consequences of sin. She would paint the picture. She would tell it like it is. But she would always present the love of Jesus Christ. All right? So I think we need to balance that when we speak to young people about uh, this particular challenge and say, yes, when you read these things, remember the love of Jesus. And does God have the power to help you face these lustful temptations? Absolutely, he does. But you, you're going to have to go and plead with him for that power and believe that his love and power are strong enough. Yes. Helen, there's an organization called uh, New Life Alive that has put out a book called Every Man's Battle. Yes. And then it's got every young man's battle and every woman's battle and so on. I personally feel that that's the number one idol in America, sexual sin. And it is. And so we do have the reality of this. And unfortunately, I've seen the tragedy. I've seen the tragedy over and over again. I think we need to be honest. We need to put it out there. But at the same time, I think we need to be careful because people are burdened by a tremendous load of guilt. And so I'm trying to speak to the guilty and to say, come unto me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. And at the same time, uh, you know, say that we cannot lower the standard. What? In, in that book, there are how-tos right. to overcome some of those things. And I know in my own life, I've 
other areas. I know, well, like just forgiveness, for instance. I went through a divorce, and I heard sermon after sermon on forgive, forgive, forgive. How do you forgive? Yeah, so the how-tos. So I consider some of the things focused on the family is put out and some of these other things. They tell you how to apply the principles that we've been given in the spirit of God. Right, so very good. So sometimes you just need the how-to, and, and you need to take those general principles and say, how do they work? Very good. I, I knew I had to cover that one, and no one would be brave enough to bring it up, so I just thought I'd, I'd jump in there and at least mention it. There is some si- scientific evidence, though, that does back up Ellen White's view, particularly in extreme cases, in extreme cases, that it does lead to medical conditions. Uh, yes, so I'm going to take one last one in there. Ministry. And I met one of the young men, and when he found out who I was, you know, he was kind of shocked, and he says, Oh, he says, Your boy is doing wonders for San Francisco. He started a men's ministry. Then, what kind of book do you think we're, we're studying? And I'm thinking, you know, when he shows me, it's Every Man's Battle, I'm thinking, This is a church that had homosexuals, lesbians, I mean, everything, all mm-hmm. kinds of people in it. So, very good. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on from that topic, but it is true that God has provided a way out. Amen? But we, there are principles and there are covenants. There are ways we can, we can deal with this. Uh, other questions before we close here? Uh, yes, right over in the corner here. Yeah, I, I, that's why I think what we have to do is go back to the principles and look at the principles. So we have to ask the same questions about modesty and practicality. Uh, she was very practical in my mind. Uh, within, within a time, for instance, when women had these long dresses, she said, okay, make your dresses longer. So what did people do? Put them on the ground. But back then, uh, what did you have? Did you have nice vehicles traveling around? No, you had horses and, and buggies. And what do horses leave? Other things, all right? So as you're walking along, your dresses would pick up this filth. So she said, raise the dresses. So then what did people do? Whew, you know, uh, the version in those days of a miniskirt, you know. And so she was, she was just trying to get them to be practical. She said we should not be the first ones to desert uh, the older fashions. I, I mean, we should not be the first ones to embrace a new fashion, nor the last one to leave an older fashion. You understand what I'm saying? She was very practical. You know, don't, you don't have to look like you crawled out of the 16th century. But at the same time, you shouldn't look like you're crawling into the 22nd. All right? Uh, don't... A lot of times she was answering a question of an extreme nature, and then take that answer she gave to apply to something else. Right, so people would always be, be playing this, this off with her. But I, you know, the, I do have some things to say about dress that I think Ellen White would say. Can I, say, I just say them? Amen. You know, don't, don't advertise if you're not selling. Amen. 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 You know? 
<laughs> yeah, I, well, it's both, both sides, men and women. Don't advertise what you're not selling. We are addicted to image these days. This is what I think should say, so I'm being Ellen White for a moment. <laughs> we are addicted to image, and we need to get away from our addiction to image. I mean, I, I sense it in myself. When I get in front of the mirror, there's that tendency to say, oh, you know, what do I look like, you know, and all of those kinds of things. And generally, I walk away in, in you know, feeling like I need prayer. But, the, <laughs> but we, should, we shouldn't be so focused on image. We've become neurotic about image. If Ellen White was here today, she'd say, stop focusing on yourself and start focusing on Jesus Christ. Then the dress issue isn't going to be as important. When we start focusing on Jesus, we're not going to worry about, do I look cool today or what? You know? <laughs> that's not going to be our concern. And, and that's one of the reasons why, for instance, I encourage... Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with a little bit of makeup, but I encourage women not to wear a lot of makeup because my wife told me, you know, when she, was, when she used to wear makeup, every time she passed a mirror, she was conscious of herself. Why? Because has my makeup run? All right? You know, what, what do I look like now? We're, we are a self-obsessed society, and I believe Ellen White would say we need to get back to our focus on Jesus. Amen. All right. So good. Uh, other questions? Yes. What about her statements on the wedding band, wedding ring? Oh, man, you really do want to get me into trouble, don't you? <laughs> He's asking about the wedding band. Fascinating story on the wedding band, and we don't have time. So, we had 30 minutes. Yeah, yeah, we, uh, we, we will have a section after the session where we can network. I will say there was a very particular situation there. Ellen White's statements on the wedding band, to me, are pretty clear. You know, her, her actual statements on it. Now it's true that there's not a lot of statements on it. Why? Because it was kind of assumed that Adventists in those days weren't, weren't going to wear the wedding band. But there were exceptions made, and those exceptions overseas became the norm overseas. So Adventists overseas generally do wear the wedding band, and Adventists in the United States generally used to not wear the wedding band. And because, <coughs> because of the confusion over that, Eventually, in North America, we came to kind of a compromise, and that compromise has eventually resulted in more people wearing the wedding band. That was, I believe, never Ellen White's intention at that time. But uh, she was, you know, we could get into that whole discussion. All right. Yes. Yeah, that's what I say. We, we won't get it because uh, the problem with the wedding band is it often generates more heat than light. And so because of the official position of the Adventist church where if it's a matter of where if it's according to your conscience, you feel you need to wear the wedding band, you can. Because of that official position, I'm not going to stand against the official position. I'm just saying my point of view is that that was never Ellen White's intention when she wrote her statements about allowing it overseas for particular circumstances. All right. Yes. Okay, you're going to speak for your friend. This is good ventriloquism. All right. She wanted to ask you, are men wearing ties? She's like, why can guys wear ties and women can't wear necklaces? Oh, yeah, I'm all for doing ri getting rid of the ties. So, yeah, next. <laughs> no, it's, uh, yeah, you know, there, there's always this discussion. I think there is something... To, the Bible specifically speaks against gold and metal and other things, but it also speaks about adornment. It speaks about being adorned with simplicity. 
And I do sometimes think that we tend to go to one extreme or the other. We either tend to be very casual and we treat God as a big buddy that we just kind of arrive at an event and we're all sloppy. You know what I'm talking about? And on the other hand, we sometimes treat God too formally and we feel like we've got to, unless we're wearing certain clothes, we can't worship God. I, I, I think there's danger in both extremes. And so I don't see that uh, anywhere in the Bible that talks about having to wear a tie but I think that what's happened is it's become part of an acceptable way to show respect. Is that you wear a tie, you dress a certain way, and it's a way of showing respect. So that's, uh, that's how I believe that's come about. But I'm all for getting rid of colonial oppression. No. <laughs> in, in, no in Africa, it would be funny because it would be like 100 degrees out. You're, it's humid. Uh, you're all uh, perspiring. I won't say sweating. You're perspiring crazily. And, uh, and here you're wearing these suits, and you know the original African dress, which was very respectful for them, you know, was probably a whole lot better. But there's some forms of African dress that I try to tell my wife, look, you know, this is the way people in Africa used to dress, and you're marrying a white African, so maybe you're going to end up having to dress like that. But somehow she felt like running around in tiny little skirts without anything on the top wasn't respectful. <laughs> so... So, so what I'm saying is uh, you can take the cultural arguments too far. You know what I'm talking about? So in our culture, it's generally a sign of respect. To show respect for God, you dress up a little. And I think there's something good. Let's dress up a little bit for God. All right. Any other questions? As, are, we, are we out of time? I think we are. You've done well in the heat. You've come here. I hope we answered some good questions for you. I just decided to take them on the fly. I'm going to be available if you have any other questions. I want to tell you again, God has given us an incredible gift in this lady, Ellen White. Uh, Time after time, I read her works and I say, this has brought me closer to God. I don't know how I could have made it without her. And I want to encourage you, read Ellen White. She'll benefit you tremendously. Let's stand for prayer. Father, Forgive us for looking at the skeptics. Forgive us, Lord, for tending to depend on our rational views. Let the Word of God speak. When we read things, instead of putting in, how can I get out of this? Instead, let us say, Lord, help me to do what you've called me to do. Lord, we've neglected this great gift. Forgive us that our Bibles are dusty and that Ellen White is relegated to the Sabbath school lesson. Help us instead to see the rich vastness and the deepness of the spirit of prophecy. And as we do, may the day star arise in our hearts and may Jesus be glorified. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.